Thank you so much. Thanks so much for the love and honor. I am really thankful for this opportunity to speak this morning, Steve. Um, this has been, unequivocally, the absolute worst week of my entire life. <laughs> I don't know how many of you know, but my dad uh, has been in the hospital, and it's been a really, really rocky course for us. I'm going to tell the whole story at the end, because I want to get some teaching in before I start crying. So, But... um. Steve came by the hospital on Tuesday, and I told him the testimony of the miracles that God had already done. And he was telling me, he said, you know, we're, we're, I'm going to have four people speak on Sunday, and I'd like for you to be one of them. I was like, well, that's great. That's awesome. Thank you. So he called me back the next day, and he said, you know, I was thinking about it, and I think I'm just going to have you speak. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> that's a huge deal. But I'm thankful, first of all, that you trusted me with your whole congregation. But second of all, that focusing on the word for today is what got me through the rest of the week, and it really drove me to a level of faith that made everything all right. I'll just, my dad almost died this time last week, and we stood there and watched it, and it, it wasn't, it was your worst episode of House, ER, every medical show that you can think of, for five hours straight. He was crashing, they were pouring blood into, it was the worst nightmare ever, and all week he's still been in the ICU, still sick, and so... We've been on pins and needles all week, but the minute I opened up the Bible to start preparing for today, strength started to come, faith started to come, life started to come, and I have been a brand new woman since Wednesday. I don't think I would have made it through the week without this, so I don't know whether that was your intention or whether that was the Holy Spirit's intention, but thank you so much. The other thing I knew was God would not let my father die because I wouldn't be able to preach this Sunday, so I'm like, okay, he's going to make it. <laughs> So <laughs> it's not like I'm going to be like, yeah, God is awesome. We're burying my dad next week. So, hey. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you guys today about, um, I wanted to expand on a sermon that I preached during uh, our preaching AMT um, during the School of Ministry commercial break. The School of Ministry, if you decide to go, will be the most awesome, 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 awesome experience of your entire life. I highly recommend it. It has catapulted me to the next level in ministry and as a revivalist, and it was just the most amazing experience of my life. So if you're thinking about it, stop thinking about it, turn your application in, and do it because you will never be the same. End commercial. <laughs> nice commercial, yeah. So the, what, I, what I preached uh, during my, uh, my um, AMT was living life from the third heaven. And uh, it's one thing to preach it. It's another thing to have to really live it, to have to really dig in and live it. Um, and that's what I had to do this week. And so it just really solidified the message. And I hope that something that I share today will take you to the next level of being able to live in the third heaven. So just what is this whole third heaven? What are the three heavens? The first heaven is this natural realm. It's the earth where we live. It's governed by natural laws. If you stand on the top of a building and you jump off, gravity says you will crash and die. If you go outside with no clothes on in the middle of winter, you will catch a cold. If you drink after somebody with mono, you'll catch mono. I mean, there are natural laws that govern this first heaven realm under what we live. And 
there's no getting past them. So that's, that's, you know, we know those laws. The second heaven realm is where the demonic forces rule. And so it's, it's a spiritual realm. It's not actually a physical realm, but it's a spiritual realm. Um, one example of that is the, is the scripture where Daniel is talking, where he, stopped, where he was fasting and praying for 21 days. And finally the angel came to him and he said, I would have been here sooner, but I was warring in the heavens with the prince of Persia. And only Michael came to help me. And then when I go back, I'm going to have to war with the Prince of Greece. So there's this whole spiritual realm above us that we can't see where there's demonic fighting. There's these demonic powers that rule. Um, Paul talks about in Ephesians, he says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. He also says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So you can just imagine this spiritual realm above us where the demonic is ruling and reigning over this earth realm. And then above that is the third heaven, and that's where God rules and reigns. That's where the throne rules of God is. Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven and seeing visions there that were just too deep to even mention. John, we know the whole book of Revelations is him being caught up to the third heaven and seeing images in the throne room and what was going on in the heavenly realms. So we've got this first heaven realm, we've got the second heaven realm, we've got the third heaven realm. So the question is, where do we live? Where are we? I mean, obviously, physically right now, we are sitting in the first realm. We are bound sort of, by the, the laws of this physical realm. But positionally, there's a difference. Physically, we're here. Positionally, we live in that third heaven realm. And uh, uh, Colossians 1 and 13 says, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. So we've been transferred from being uh, subject to the first heaven realm and the second heaven realm. We've been transferred into that third heaven realm. So we've been restored to that. So how did this all happen? How did we get to this place? Let's go back to the beginning of beginnings. I talk fast when I get excited. So (laughs) I'm looking at my best friend. She's like, bring it down. Okay. <laughs> She's my figure. <thinking>, <laughs> they used to call me Tread Lips. That was my nickname. So <laughs> if we go back to the beginning of beginnings. When God originally created the heavens and the earth, the earth was an outpost of heaven. It was just supposed to be another part of heaven. And the same rules that applied in the third heaven were supposed to apply to the earth. And so when he created Eden and put man in Eden, it was full of abundance. It was full of beauty. It just was excellent. Man had no sickness. We were to live eternally. There was no death. There was no fear. There was no poverty. Everything man needed was right there. And we were in perfect, intimate relationship with God. And so it was just this this outpost of heaven. And man was put on on earth to be a representative of God in the earth, to rule the same way that, that uh, God ruled in heaven. Um, the scripture where it says, let us make man in our image, another translation of that is let us make man as our image. And if you go back in history, when Caesar was ruling over Rome, he would put busts and statues of himself in all the different countries and all the different regions that they had conquered. And that was to represent Caesar rules this area. And so that was his image to let the people of Spain, the people of Sparta, the people of wherever know Caesar rules here. That was his image. We are God's image. So not only are we made in his image, we are his image. So we are a bust of God in the earth to say God rules here. So think of yourself that way. That's a little kingdom injection, right? God rules here through us. 
And as long as we were in a position of complete subjection, in a a position of complete obedience to his authority, we were supposed to be little God rulers in the earth. Unfortunately, what happened was Satan comes along, challenges man's identity and says, you can be like God. You can be just like God. You don't have to be subject to him. You don't have to rule this world subject to him. If you do what I say, then you can become a ruler. And unfortunately, the humanness in man, that appealed to him. And so he took of the apple, he ate, he sinned, and man fell from that place of dominion, fell from that place of relationship, fell from that place of being a God ruler, of being in the image of God. And so that's when this whole second heaven realm started to take over. Um, When Jesus described Satan, he described him as the prince of the power of the air. And he actually called him the ruler of this world. Because at that time, he was. Adam had dominion. Adam ruled the world. He turned that dominion over to Satan when he fell in the garden. And so when, when, when Satan was tempting Jesus and he said, look and see all the kingdoms of this world, I will give them to, give them to you. I've heard people preach, well, he was just lying. He didn't have any power. He did. It belonged to him, and it was his power to give it to Jesus Christ. So there was this period from the fall until the time of Jesus Christ where rule and reign over the earth belonged to the enemy. But that's the whole purpose for Jesus coming, to win it back. When Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost, he wasn't talking about us dying and go to heaven. He was talking about us being restored to that place of dominion, to that place of being the image of God, to that place of being God rulers in the earth. And so all that was completed, all that was finished when Jesus died, took the keys from Satan And they were returned to him. And he said, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. I've regained it. So we're no longer under the dominion of the second heaven. As Christians, we have been positionally moved from this first heaven realm, from the second heaven realm, and we are reigning and ruling with Christ in heavenly places. Okay, so that's something that we got to keep in mind. If you can keep that in mind all the time, it'll change your life as a revivalist, as someone praying for people, as someone ministering to people. We're not, we're not down here in the first heaven subject to first heaven rules. We are seated at the right hand of God with Jesus Christ in heavenly places. And that's actually in uh, Ephesians 2 and 6. And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. So... What's the problem then? Because we should be living an Edenic life. We should be living just like Eden. We should be in complete abundance. We should be free from sickness. We should be free from death, free from poverty, all that stuff. It's been restored, past tense, been restored. It's already been done. The problem is right here. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And so it's literally a mind renewal that we have to go through to get to the point where we realize I'm not subject to first heaven rules. I'm not subject to second heaven rules. I live and I rule and reign with Christ in the third heaven. There's this analogy that me and Yvette used to use all the time called the purple sky world. And that, that's the kingdom. That's where all the kingdom rules prevail. And we live, the first heaven is the blue sky world. And so we would say purple sky. Just think like the purple sky. Stay focused on the purple sky. You know, purple represents royalty in the kingdom. And so we, we also came up with this analogy of a trampoline where there's these times you live in the glory. You're worshiping and, and you're focused on God and you're full of faith and you're full of life. And then something happens and you just fall back down to the earth realm. And if, if Daniel can cue up the, uh, my little clip here, 
This is, this is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite kingdom movies, The Matrix. It has so many kingdom met- metaphors and kingdom thoughts and, and all that kind of stuff. In this scene that we're going into, yeah, okay, you're just like, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> In this particular scene, uh, I don't know how many of you know the movie. If you don't know this movie, you should watch it. Just the first one. The second one, they went way left as far as the kingdom is concerned. But the first one has so many kingdom metaphors. It'll just really, it'll really change the way you think, right? <laughs> In this first one, in, in this scene right here, this is Neo, and he is the one. He's come to save the world and all this kind of stuff. And they're training him to make him realize that you don't live in this matrix. You don't live. You're not subject to the rules of the matrix. If you renew your mind, if you change your mind, you're not subject to matrix rules. And so he's just gotten through sparring with him where they, they plugged him into this thing and they downloaded jujitsu and, and, and kung fu and all this sort of stuff. And he's teaching him to fight, and he's saying... Don't think normal. Think like I can do anything. I have all power. I can do anything. And so then they, they load this next scene. Tank, load the jump program. You have to let it all go, Neil. Fear, doubt, and disbelief. Free your Unfortunately, that's what trying to live in the third heaven also sometimes. <laughs> that's what it sometimes looks like. We're like, okay, free my mind. Faith, faith. I'm an overcomer. It's the kingdom. And then you end up flat on the concrete. So <laughs> that's, that's the analogy. We see. We're on the trampoline, and we're, sometimes we're up in the third heaven, and other times faith just doesn't do it, and you just end up smack on concrete. So try not to do that, but... Uh, <laughs> That's what happens. So what are, what are some, one of my favorite exercises to, to, to maintain this life of living in the third heaven is actually picturing what the third heaven looks like. So I want all of you to close your eyes for a second and just imagine God uh, spoke to, uh, Jesus spoke to, um, to John in the book of Revelation and said, come up hither, come up hither. I want you to see, I want you to see what's up here. And so when John got up there, what did he see? His image of Jesus with him just with white hair and, and, and with legs and, and feet that looked like burnished bronze. They were so glorious. He had a long robe on and a, and a gold band around his waist. And when he looked in his eyes, they looked like fire. And he had this sword, this two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. When he turned around to look at the throne, he saw this glorious, awesome throne. And God sitting there on the throne looked like this 
amazing, amazing jewel. He described him as looking like jasper and sardius stone. And there was a fiery flame coming out of the throne. There were ten thousands and ten thousands of angels there ministering to him. There was a crystal sea of glass. There was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. He describes when he looked at at Jesus as saying his countenance was shining like the sun in its strength. And all he could do was fall on his face like he was dead. In the book of Ezekiel, he talks about seeing God. And after he describes the cherubim and the seraphim with all the wings and the eyes and the feet and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And these wheels and this burning wheels turning and turning. And he says he saw a a throne that looked like a big sapphire. And the one that was sitting there, he couldn't even describe it. He said he looked like burning and brightness. From the waist up, he looked like amber surrounded by fire and not just fire, but like burning metal, this white, hot light fire. And then from the waist down, he looked like fire with brightness all around it. You can open your eyes now. So these images of the throne room are all glory. Sean Boltz was uh, in, in, I can't remember if it was in his book or if it was when he was talking. He talked about this throne room experience where he looked at Jesus and his glory was like the power of a nuclear reaction. And so when you put yourself in the throne room, when you see the thousands and ten thousands of angels, when you see the huge throne that looks like a jewel, when you see Jesus looking like fire and his eyes burning with fire and a sword coming out of his mouth and his countenance looking like the sun, when you see these images, it changes your thinking. And then not only see God sitting there on his throne and Jesus sitting right there next to him, but see yourself on a throne right there because positionally that's where you are. And all of a sudden that changes things. That, that creates an ability with you to think and to, to see life and to live from the third heaven. So what do we have? What are the benefits of living life from the third heaven? One of the benefits is kingdom authority. And just like I said, if you see yourself in heavenly places, Jesus Christ is reigning there. He's already overcome everything. He's got the keys to Hades and death. He's got the keys to the kingdom, which he's conferred to us. He's sitting there at God's right hand. Ephesians 1 and 21 says, He's talking about the power that lives in us. And he says that same power which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be named, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So there's nothing that that's above Jesus Christ. We are reigning with him in full authority over every principality, over every power, over every might in this age and in the age to come. And so you got to see yourself in that place of authority. Uh, Matthew 16 and 19, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. See yourself in that place of authority. Matthew 28, 18 through 19, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So because Jesus has been giving all authority, he's given it to us. And therefore, we are given the commission. We're given the authority. We're given the power and the call to go forth and make disciples of all nations. It'll change the way you pray if you're able to live life from the third heaven. I have... um, 
I have these armchairs in my living room, and one of them is this bright red leather chair that I call my throne. And so when I, when I, sometimes when I go to pray, I will sit on my throne, and I'll just imagine. It's, I'm a writer, so it gets elaborate, so just bear with me here. So I imagine I go, just bear with me, really. It's kind of ridiculous, but I go up this escalator, and while I'm going up the escalator, the angels are just cleansing me and washing me with hyssop and water, and they're changing me out of my clothes, and they're putting on my queenly garments. And so... I'm looking exquisite by the time I walk in the throne room. I've got on my queenly garments. I've got on my crown. I just look like an exquisite queen. And I sit on my throne. And so instead of my prayer being, oh, God, please, 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 God, it's in the name of Jesus. I have a roar because I'm sitting on my throne in heavenly places with God, in that place of authority, in that place of rulership, in that place of dominion. So no more begging, pleading, wishing, hoping prayers. It's I'm declaring, I have authority in the earth right now, and I'm declaring what is to be. I'm speaking those things that are to be. And if, if you pray from the third heaven, it'll change your whole, your whole way of praying, your whole way of thinking when you pray. So find a throne in your house and just put on your queenly or kingly garments when you go into your time of prayer because we have kingdom authority in the, first, in the third heaven with God. The second thing we have is creative power. So just as God spoke the world into existence, Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Psalms 33 and 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. There's so many scriptures that just talked about how God spoke things into being. The whole earth, light be and light was. Everything, he didn't create anything with his hands other than man. Everything was, he spoke it into existence, and that's how it came to be. And we have that same creative power within us to speak things into existence. So imagine you're sitting in the throne room. You don't have to wonder, is it God's will? What's God's will for this situation? You're sitting right next to him. And the other imagination I have is just laying my head on his chest and saying, what do you think about this situation, Daddy? What do you think about this, Papa? What are you saying about this? What are you declaring about this? And so my prayer not only has authority, but I understand that I have the mind of God. And when I'm praying, I am simply speaking into existence what he's saying. I'm agreeing with what's being said in the throne room. I'm agreeing with the heavenly council. And everything I say, I have confidence that it will come to pass because I know it's the will of God. It's born out of a place of intimacy with him, that intimate fellowship and intercession, that intimate fellowship in prayer where you're literally speaking the mind and the will of God into the earth. There's a scripture in Psalms, and I wish I'd looked it up, where it talks about the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, how it thunders and how it makes all these things to happen in the earth because the voice of the Lord is thundering. And we have to begin to see ourselves as the voice of the Lord in the earth. It's interesting, if you think about the creation story, six days of creation, and then God sat down and rested. Why was he able to sit down and rest? Because he had turned over authority to man. Genesis 1 and 28, where he told us, go, take dominion, subdue, be in charge, run the world. God was able to take his Sabbath and sit down because he had turned it all over to us to be in control of. When Jesus Christ died, was resurrected, and ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God. God is sitting down. Jesus is sitting down. So when we look at the earth and everything being out of kilter, whose job is it to call things into kingdom order? 
They're sitting down and resting. They're in their Sabbath. They've done what they're going to do. It's up to us. We are kingdom ambassadors, kingdom citizens. And we are called to call this earth and to establish the kingdom through our words and through our mouth. What else do we have in the third heaven? We have heaven's abundance. So we should never worry about lack. We should never worry about poverty. As Steve said, I quit my job in February. I was a doctor making doctor money. And it has been a fight of faith the whole time, but it is believing in heaven's abundance, believing in heaven's provision. There is no lack. Forget the economy, forget the news, forget everything that you hear every day. We are not living in a first heaven economy. We are reigning and ruling with a third heaven economy. And think of images of heaven. The streets are paved with gold. Gold is God's asphalt. Okay? Gold is concrete to God, okay? If you look at it in, in, in Isaiah and also in the book of Revelations where he describes the temple, it's all, it's walls of jewels, precious jewels. The gates are pearls. Even in Eden, the ground was littered with jewels. They were walking on jewels. Stuff that we pay thousands and thousands of dollars was something they would stub their toe on. That is the abundance of heaven, and that's the abundance that we've been restored to because we've been transferred out of this first realm into the third heaven realm. And, and what else do we have? We have the, the mindset of heaven, which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So we, wouldn't, we shouldn't be in fear. We shouldn't be worried. We shouldn't be all nothing that we see on the news. Nothing, nothing around us outside of us should be able to affect us. Now, that all preaches well, right? That all preaches well. But when your dad is crashing, <laughs> you look like Neo jumping off that building, okay? It, 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 it's a great concept. It, it, like I said, it preaches well. But the actual practical application of it is a completely different story, completely different story. And that's, that's the good fight of faith, learning how to say, I know all this stuff, I know all this stuff, I know all this stuff, but really living it. And, and you know, school was a challenge for me this year. I've been, I've been studying the kingdom for years, reading kingdom scriptures. I could stand here and preach messages on eschatology and the kingdom. Is, I could all day teach you stuff about the kingdom. But I'm like the Samaritan in the story that if I see a person in the wheelchair, I'm just kind of going across the street because up until now, I didn't really have much faith for healing. When I was working in the prison, I would pray for people all the time. And I have these great testimonies. This woman got healed from cancer, and the oncologist called me and said, I don't know what happened. We put her port in to start her chemo, and then we looked for the cancer, and there was none. And I'm like, but I, have, I didn't get up here to testify and tell you all the stories of the people that didn't get healed, that died of cancer on my watch when I was taking care of them as a doctor, all the people that I prayed for that went to the hospital and crashed and died. And so I got to this place with God where I didn't really believe that I could minister healing to people. You know, I, I've gotten these words in the past, you're going to be a healer and most of your healing will be emotional healing. So I'm like, yeah, I'm an emotional healer. I can prophesy. I can lay hands. But I'm not, a, I'm, not a, I'm not Scott Thompson. I'm not him. You know, I don't grow out legs. I don't raise, you know, I'm not these Bethel people who raise the dead. I just... I'll stick to the emotional healing. I'll stay in my lane. That's what I'll do, you know. But it still bothered me. And, and, and to think as a scientist, you know, they, they say, they, everybody would tell me, don't worry about it. Just keep praying for people. And as the more you pray for people, the more you'll see healing. And John Wimber didn't pray with a thousand people until he saw his first healing. And I'm like, that's all fine and good. But think about it. As a doctor, we do, we do studies. 
and, and the percent of people that respond to a treatment determines how effective the treatment is. So if I pray for 100 people and two get healed, that doesn't work in Dr. World. And in fact, if you continue to employ that medium, it's malpractice. So, so in my doctor brain, this healing thing just doesn't work. And I continue to get more and more frustrated. And God would continue to present opportunities for me to pray. Somebody would walk up to me and be like, oh, God, my knee is so bad. I'd be like, ooh, hope that gets better. Take some leave. Put some ice on it. You know, but I, I would not take the challenge. You know, Carrick has all his stories of being in the gym and getting this person healed and that person healed and this person healed. And I'm just like, well, that's just not my ministry. You know, forget the fact that I've gotten prophecies about being Catherine Kuhlman. Forget all that. I'm holding on to the prophecy that I do emotional healing. That's the one I'm focusing on. So it, it, it got to this frustrating point to where I don't really like to pray for people for healing anymore because it's just frustrating when nothing happens. And it's embarrassing when nothing happens. And I just, it just got to be this contention between me and God. I'm just, I don't like the way that feels, and you're going to have to help me with this thing, God. You know, it just wasn't a, it wasn't a good feeling. And so a while back, um, I got this email from this young lady in Cameroon, and she read my book, Dance into Destiny. Somehow my book got over to Cameroon. Isn't that amazing? And she writes me this long email about how much it blessed her and how much she loved it and blah, 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 blah. So we start emailing each other back and forth over three months. And then she called me. We talked on the phone one day, and we've been chatting on Facebook. And so she starts to talk about this group that she's in of Youth Aglow. And this, 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 this group of 60 young people that are on fire for God. They want more of the presence of God. They want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're, they're literally... Um, risking being excommunicated from their churches because they want the Holy Spirit. If her mother knew that she was filled with the Holy Spirit, she would get kicked out of her house and kicked out of her church. It's just that serious. And so, but they're like, but we want more of God. We want more of God. And so one night I wake up in the middle of the night praying for revival in Cameroon. And I'm like, what in the world is this? And it just every night I'm disturbed by Cameroon and I'm interceding for Cameroon. And so finally I talked to her and I'm like, yeah, I've been praying. And she's like, yeah, I've been praying for you to come over here and minister to us. And I'm like, Okay, could you stop? I'd like to get some sleep, you know. So they invite me over, and their mentor writes me, and he says, I can't believe this is happening. This is so amazing. Years and years ago, I started reading Rick Joyner, and that's who me and Yvette cut our prophetic teeth on is Rick Joyner. We started reading him years and years ago, and, and, I, and I love to read Sean Boltz and Paul Keith, and he's naming all these people that I know and love. And he said, and three days before you and, you and Genevieve, is the young lady, before you guys hooked up, I picked up my first Bill Johnson book, and I looked on the back, and it had an endorsement by Heidi Baker, and I knew this was the book I was supposed to read. And so I read the book, and then three days later, Genevieve comes, and she tells me that you're from Bill Johnson's church and Bill Johnson's school, and we just can't wait for you to come and minister. And I'm like, no pressure. <laughs> so here they're expecting this healing revivalist that's been, that's been trained in the Bethel School of Ministry in the tradition of Bill Johnson to come, and I'm like, going to Africa, sure, there's going to be sick people there. What if they bring a sick person up? And ask me to pray for him. And I'm just going to be like, I'm going to teach the kingdom. And I'm going to activate them to pray for each other. I mean, I just was coming up with all sorts of stuff. But it just started to bother me more and more. They're expecting me to bring this healing revivalist message. And I, I wrote on my school application, I've been studying the kingdom for years. But I want to be able to apply it. I told God, I will not get up and preach the kingdom if I can't do the miracles and signs and wonders following What's the point? I'm going to get up and preach life from the third heaven. We have authority over sickness and death and fear and all this stuff. And then I lay hands and the person limps away. I I'm not doing that, God. I'm just not. 
So we need some miracles flowing or I'm just going to be sitting down, you know? So this week, my dad goes in the hospital for routine surgery. For the past couple of years, they've been finding uh, cancerous polyps, pre-cancerous, not even cancerous, pre-cancerous polyps in his colon. So we're going to do this preventive surgery to take these pre-cancerous polyps. If I'm sarcastic, God forgive me. It's just... The fact that we are where we are now for a routine preventive surgery is just mind-blowing. <laughs> so he goes in for this routine surgery, and over the course of the week, they said he's going to go home in four to six days, and everything's going to be fine, and, you know, everything was supposed to be fine. And so about day four, when he's supposed to be getting better, he starts going downhill. He starts getting worse. He starts complaining of more pain and can't eat and all this kind of stuff is going on. And so we're starting to get worried, but... You know, it'll, it'll get better. The doctor's telling us, it's gonna, it'll get better. It's going to get better. Everything's fine. We see this sometimes. And then he starts passing blood in his, in his stool. And we're like, something's not right. And so Thursday, he's looking bad. Friday, he's looking bad. Last weekend, I had to go teach at this teen purity conference in Spartanburg. And so I went to the hospital and I said, Dad, I will call her and I will tell her that I'm not coming. And he's like, I want you to go. I'm going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. So I sit at the hospital with him all day, and I'm just like, God, I just, he's like, I want you to go. Go minister to these young people. So I get in the car, and when I get in the car driving the two hours to Spartanburg, I hear God say, you're going to have to live in the third heaven. Because I've got to speak and teach and be on, and my dad is home in the hospital sick, and we don't know what's going on, and we don't know what's happening. And so he's like, live life from the third heaven. Just stay focused on the third heaven. And I'm like, okay. So I go up there, and... Everything's wonderful and fine, and I'm teaching and ministering, and everything's great. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And then my sister calls on Saturday. I was supposed to stay over and and then come back Sunday morning. She calls Saturday afternoon, right before I'm supposed to go teach the keynote message at this purity conference for these kids. And she says, Dad's labs are looking a little funny, and he's not looking that great. And I'm like, okay. So I tell the the lady who's over the conference, and she says, well, if you want to go, you should go. And one of the other authors that was there with me, she pulls me aside and she says, I really believe that you're supposed to stay here because it's, you know, this is warfare. These are, these are kids that are giving their life to God and they're, they're committing their purity to God. And I really feel like, you know, that, that it would be warfare for you to stay here and, 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 and teach. And she says, I don't know why your father is sick, but I feel like it's Lazarus, that this sickness is not unto death, but it's so God can be glorified. And I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, I wasn't really paying much attention to what she was saying. And so, Lazarus, whatever. My dad's not that sick. I mean, he's not dying, so there's no reason to compare him to Lazarus. Thank you very much. So, (laughs) go ahead and preach the little sermon. It was really, really good. It was really a blessing, and I just was excited because, you know, to come out of medicine and to be walking into my destiny, it's an awesome feeling to stand in front of people with a microphone. It's a dream come true. 2009 is the year of dreams come true. So it was, it was a dream come true, but it, it, I'm still worried about my dad. And so I was, I was sitting around chatting with the people and I'm like, I got to get on the road. And I just felt this tug, get on the road. So I get on the road and my sister calls and she says, I need you to pull over. And I'm like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. So I pull over and she says, They've got to take him back to surgery. They did an x-ray, and there's free air in his belly, which means the place where they've reattached the colon has somehow opened, and he's spilling not only free air, but bowel into his belly. So not a good thing. And I'm like, okay, okay. I'm two hours away. I'm two hours away. This is going to be a very long drive. And so I pull back on the road, and I start driving, and God says, call Rhonda, my beautiful, wonderful, lovely writer friend, Rhonda. 
who's here today. Thank you. And he says, call Rhonda. So I'm like, okay, this is to distract me because we will talk for an hour straight and I won't think about my dad. This is just, we're going to talk about writer stuff. We're going to talk about this and that and it's going to be fine. And so I get on the phone and I tell her the news and I said, but I don't want to talk about that right now. I need you to distract me. So we talk about writer stuff for a few seconds and she says, no, I'm going to pray for you. I'm like, okay, I really don't want to think about it, but okay, pray. And Rhonda says, you've got to get your mind out of doctor mode. You can't think like a doctor. You have to focus on what God is saying. You have to focus on the God of miracles. And she goes on to prophesy to me that your healing ministry is being held up because you think like a doctor. And that was the absolute God truth. I mean, I think like a doctor. When I'm laying hands on somebody, my brain is thinking of the physiology of why it's impossible for them to get healed or why you know, I mean, a doctor, you lay hands on somebody's belly, it's magic if, if they have a hernia and it disappears. That just, you know what I'm saying? And, and I don't, I mean, I'm a writer, but I don't have that kind of magical thinking. You know what I'm saying? And so every time I approach someone to pray for healing, I'm thinking like a doctor. And although I'm speaking the word of God, my brain is thinking about the physiology and the pathology and just all the doctor stuff. And it's just been a wall. It has been a wall. And so Rhonda says, you cannot think like a doctor. You have to think like a healing revivalist. There's things that you're praying for that are held up, that you're waiting on God for, that you're trusting God for, and they're held up because you think so much like a doctor. You think so logically. Get out of your mind and focus on God. So driving up there, God is like third heaven. Driving back, stop thinking like a doctor. Think third heaven. Okay, we got this. All right. Get back to the room. Didn't make it back in time. I wanted to pray for my dad before he went to surgery. He had to go on down. So I get there in time to just sit around with my mom for a while, still feeling peaceful. I mean, it's like this is still routine. They're just going to take him, see what's going on in his belly. He might have to get a colostomy. Okay, we can live with all this. We can live with all this. So the doctor comes upstairs, and he's smiling, and everything went fine. The place where they reattached his colon died, and he, we had to take about eight more, nine more inches out. His belly was full of stool, full of pus. There was a lot of infection, but everything's fine. So I'm like, okay, we're going to put him in the ICU for a while, but everything's fine. I'm like, okay. So then a few minutes later, the nurse says, the other doctor wants to come up and talk to you. And everything in me turned to jelly. I just started shaking. And I honestly don't know whether it was fear or whether it was the Holy Spirit that I just... I spent the rest of the evening like this, pretty much. And so we go downstairs to the ICU, and the anesthesiologist comes out. He's all cheerful, too, and he's like, I really don't understand what's going on. We can't get your dad's blood pressure up. It's running about 50 over. I'm like, 50? The top number is 50? I'm a doctor. I know what that means. That means there's no blood getting to his brain. That means there's no blood getting to his kidneys. That means there's no blood getting to this gut that was already ischemic and dead. I know what that means. His blood pressure is 50, but yeah, he's thrashing around and, you know, he's, I don't understand why he's so strong and why he's awake and everything, but we're not going to be able to take him off the vent. Okay. And he thought it was from the sepsis. So we'll give him some antibiotics. We'll give him some fluid. Everything will be better. So me and mom are like, okay, okay, we're going to go in the room. And for the next five hours, not one hour, not two, not three, not four, but for the next five hours, my dad crashed and we're watching, and there's sometimes the, the, the blood pressure machine blows up every five minutes. And there were some times where there were just X's, where there should have been numbers. There were no numbers because there was no blood pressure. There was absolutely no blood pressure. So they're like, we should give him some blood. So they squeeze in blood. Now, when somebody's crashing, you put a pressure cuff around the blood, and, and, and you, you force it in as fast as it could go in. So they force the blood in. His blood pressure comes up. We're like, Phew, okay, everything's fine. The minute the transfusion stops, 
the blood pressure goes back to undetectable or 50 over 30, 60 over 30. Numbers that are not compatible with life and definitely not compatible for five hours with brain perfusion, with him waking up not brain dead from all of this. His kidneys, I mean, my doctor brain is walking through and thinking of all the organ systems that are dying as my father has no blood coursing through his body. They come back and they tell us his hemoglobin hematocrit, his blood counts are 4 and 11. Ours are 12 and 45, 48, something like that. He'd lost a third of his blood. And we're steady pumping in blood. We're steady pumping in fluid. He's on what we call pressors. And there's medications that they give a person to keep their blood pressure up. There's one that you start with. If that one doesn't work, you put on the second one. If that one doesn't work, you put on what we call Levafed. And the anesthesiologist said, yeah, we've got him on Levafed. And in my mind, the nickname that we used to have for Levafed was leave him dead. So I'm like, my dad's on leave him dead. My dad's on leave him dead. And I had a choice. I had a choice at this juncture. Am I going to stay in the third heaven? Am I going to think with my doctor brain? Because my doctor brain knows this is bad. If this continues, he's going to die. If this continues, my father is going to die. And that's all. If this continues, my daddy is going to die. And I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice that Rhonda said, don't think with your doctor brain. Think third heaven thoughts. And so I walked into the room and I leaned over and I said, Daddy, heaven says life. Heaven says life. You are not going to die. I don't allow it. I don't accept it. You will not die. Heaven says life. And I started singing in his ear, the kingdom of the Lord reigns here. The kingdom of the Lord reigns here over and over. You will not die. You cannot die. You shall not die. Heaven says life. After two hours of this, me and mom were like, we better call our sisters back to the hospital because if he dies and we didn't look at my sister, she's like, yeah. (laughs) If he dies and they weren't here, We will never, ever be forgiven for this. (laughs) Never. (laughs) So we call them, and my mom is like, we need some more support. We've been calling the Bethel team all night and saying, you guys pray with us, you guys pray with us. And and the more times that flashed on the screen, 60 over 30, 50 over palp, XX, XX, those were the worst Xs, just they're implanted in my brain, XX. As that continued to happen, she, we, we called and we kept leaving messages. And finally we said, we need somebody here. We need somebody here. We need somebody here. And I called Scott and he said, give me five minutes. I'll call you back and somebody will be on their way. And within five minutes, we knew help was coming. We knew help was on the way because even though we were standing in faith, <laughs> even though we were standing in faith, we needed some help. We needed some additional strength to help us. And so they get there, and I wish I could give the mic to my little sister and let her tell the story, because she said, them folk walked up in there four deep. And they walked into the room. They didn't stop to say hello. They didn't stop to uh, 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 introduce themselves. They walked over to the bed like it was their daddy. They walked past the nurses. They walked past the doctors. And they just said, ha, and started praying. And it was just amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Now, let me get completely vulnerable here for a second. And uh, this is going to be painful for a minute, but I promise you it's going to get better. Just walk with me. Being at Bethel has been, for us, a challenge. And um, 
Minivet got a word a long time ago, you're going to be a liaison between the races and you're going to help bring racial reconciliation. Well, we never imagined that this was going to, how it was going to happen. And uh, like I said, completely vulnerable. It has not been easy. I mean, to be a couple of black faces in a completely white church, you know, it's just not a comfort zone. Church is the most segregated place on Sunday morning. It is not comfortable. And, uh, you know, the music is completely different. I'm a praise and worship leader, and the music is completely different and completely different. <laughs> I remember one Sunday, Lacey asked me, she said, we were, we were talking, this is when I was first getting to know Lacey, just met her, and we were at the Hales house, and we were standing in line getting some food, and we were talking about praise and worship music, and they mentioned a couple of people in a couple of songs, and she was like, I was like, and she's like, you've never heard of Anthony Skinner? You've never heard of, I don't even know who she named, and I was like, no, I don't listen to them. I listen to Israel Houghton and Fred Hammond and Joanne Rosario. Have you ever heard of them? You know, we both had our little... <laughs> That's who I listen to, so don't act like I don't know worship just because I don't know your people. Okay? <laughs> I love you, Lacey. I really do. <laughs> so it has been a challenge, you know, during the election. Some things happened, some things were said, and it just was very, very, very uncomfortable for us, you know? Not only are we in a white church, we're in a white conservative Republican church. Oh, wow. You know, it's just been totally fished out of water, totally like, this is hard, God. This is hard. But me and Yvette always said to each other, if anything ever happens, that's who I want there standing with me. That's who I want there praying with me. I don't care. We can argue about Obama. We can argue about, we can argue about the music. We can argue about whatever. But if something ever goes down, call Bethel. And that's what we always, always, always said. And so here we are, 2 o'clock in the morning, on the phone with Bethel. And they walk up in the room, just like my sister said. And you have to excuse us. I mean, understand, we grew up, you know, we, we grew up in the, in the Northeast and... Uh, we're not accustomed to racism. When I was growing up, some of my best friends were white. And then we moved to Arkansas. And the first day we get off the bus, nigger, 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 go home, niggers. And I'm like, what in the world is this? You know? So, and we lived there for many, many years experiencing unbelievable racism. And, and when I went to my Ivy League medical school, I remember this, this particular day where I was in the hall with all the other medical students with my short white coat on, hanging out with the other medical students, and one of the attending doctors walks up and he says, can you give me the phone number and call so-and-so and doing so-and-so? And I'm like, huh? He goes, could you get me the phone number for so-and-so? And I said, I don't know that phone number. And he goes, well, aren't you the desk clerk? No, I'm a medical student dressed like a medical student, with a stethoscope around my neck like the rest of the medical students. But because I was a black woman, he just assumed that I was the desk clerk. So understand my frame of reference here in that this has been a challenge for us to, you know, I mean, imagine yourself in a black church on Sunday morning, surrounded by black faces, surrounded by black music, and you know how black folks do it. Instead of jumping straight up and down, dancing, we do our little whatever. I can't do it. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> no, I really can. I really, I really can't. I really can't do it. So, so everything is different. But <laughs> so my little sister is telling the story to her husband about everything that happened. And she's like, them white people came up there four deep. And the whole speech when she's telling them white people, them white people, not because of anything, but that's just, you know, our frame of reference is whatever. So, and, and, and her husband says, white people, baby? And she goes, yeah, white people. 
And he says to her, now my, my sister and her husband, they're Hebrew Israelites. They don't ascribe to the same faith that we do. But he said to her, wow, we're going to have to go to their church. And there they sit. You know? <laughs> but the love, the unbelievable love that was displayed to us in that room tonight, I will never, ever, ever forget as long as I live. Because Lindy and Tracy and Steve and my sweet Drew, they warred with us like it was their father. That's what my little sister said. She, they acted like that was their daddy. And they did. They wore. Tracy was prophesying my daddy's destiny over him. You can't die. God has said this about you, and you haven't accomplished that yet. You can't die. Drew is doing whatever Drew does that gets all the miracles in Drew's life. Lindy is, is ministering to my sisters. My older sister has had a very difficult time with that. And Lindy's rubbing on her back and praying for her. And my little sister was describing it. She's like, they were praying for Daddy. And in the midst of that, they were praying for us. And there was such a display of community. There was such a display of love, of covenant love in that room. It was unbelievable. And I will never, as long as I live, forget that. I will never forget that. Forget white. Forget black. It doesn't matter. It's all about family. It's all about covenant it's all about love. And I'm Bethel for life. <laughs> oh. I, was, I was listening to Scott's, uh, I was listening to the podcast from Scott's uh, sermon last week talking about covenant love and covenant relationship. And when he talked about it, he hadn't made the full commitment, you know, where you don't make the full commitment. And I was really on the fence. I love Bethel. I love all of you. This last year in school has been completely amazing, but like I said, it's just this, this thing, you know, it's just this thing. And in that room that night, I, I just made that decision. This is my covenant family. This is my covenant family. It was just an amazing example to the doctors and the nurses to watch us war as one family, black and white. There was no difference between us in that room that night. The, the next day, the, the respiratory therapist came in. And he said, I have an assignment. The respiratory therapist that was with you guys during the night, that was here all night, she said, I have to find out the name of your church. I have to find out who those people are. And I have to believe that it was watching the example of our love, of our family, of, of, of that love being poured out for my father's life and the power and everything along with it. And so this week has still been interesting. The first day... Uh, I was a zombie. The second day, I was a zombie. Me and my older sister joked that we've been on the Hillendale diet. That's the hospital that he's in. I mean, we haven't been able to eat. We haven't been able to sleep. We haven't been able to focus. So everything was hard. Everything was very difficult. And when I started preparing for this, it was live life from the third heaven. And we've spoken some amazing things over my father. You know, the doctor brain knows what an ICU course looks like. It looks like catching an infection, getting sepsis, and dying. It looks like throwing a blood clot throwing a PE to your lung and dying. It looks like, I mean, people don't really often, sometimes, a lot of times they do, but it was always the what if. What if this happens? What if he, and, and all week the doctors have to come in and list to you all the possibilities of everything that can go wrong while he's in there. He could get DIC. DIC is the, is the worst nightmare. It's the kiss of death. It's where all your clotting factors get chewed up and you basically bleed to death. And so they were watching him for that. And so they were also watching him for, for um, ARDS. When you're on the vent for a prolonged time, your lungs can just basically not work and you get lung failure. They've been watching him for kidney failure because with, with having, they had to give him 10 units of blood. They pretty much 
replaced. I mean, he was already down before all this started. So they pretty much replaced most of his blood supply, you know, and so the, all the complications that go along with that. And so all week we've had to listen to this could go wrong, this could go wrong, this could go wrong, this could go wrong, this could go wrong. And we finally had to make a decision. We don't agree with you. We don't agree with that. That's not going to happen. The doctors come in and they say, he's going to go three steps forward, two steps backward, three steps forward, because that's how, I, that's how in the natural, that's how ICU courses look. And we've just stayed in a place of we don't agree with that. We don't agree with that. This morning, the nurse told my mother, she said, this is really different. I'm not used to a patient where they're not on the ICU roller coaster, where they're not down and up and down and up. She says, he's just been like this. The whole time, he's just been getting better and better every single day, every single day. And I, I've been sending out little emails, and the other day, the email I sent out, it said, we prayed for his platelets to come up. They're up. We prayed for this, and this is better. We prayed for this, and this is better. And me and my mom looked at it, and we were like, every single thing that they said could go wrong, everything they said that he may not make it because of this, everything Everything, everything has worked out perfectly fine. The last frontier, and I know that you guys are praying with me, the last frontier is that his lungs, his whole body is completely swollen because they had to pour all the fluid in him to keep him alive. I mean, he's like twice his size. The whites of his eyes were so swollen he couldn't close his eyes. I mean, it's just really grotesque. And it's just, it's amazing to live life from the third heaven, to walk in the room, to see my father stretched out on the bed, tubes from every orifices and then new orifices that have been created by the doctors. I mean, literally, there's so many tubes going that it's just confusing. There's machines beeping. There's a tube in his mouth. He can't talk to us. You know, somebody said, how's his spirit? I don't know. He's been sedated. He's been completely asleep. I mean, so seeing this picture, this horrible picture is just, it's a choice that you have to make. Am I going to live in the third heaven? And am I, am I going to believe that God is going to raise my father, that he's going to be perfectly fine, that he's going to be completely normal, that everything is coming back to complete and total health. The first few days with the beeping of the machines, it was every time a machine would beep or an alarm would go off, we'd get up, we'd run to the bed. The first night after everything happened, one of my cousins calls at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, oh, God, it's the dreaded call. Your father didn't make it through the night. I mean, and so through all of this, all this fear, but yesterday, the last few days, I've sat in that hospital room in complete and total peace. It is nothing but the presence of God. I say there's glory left over from when we were there praying the other night. But Carrot came in to pray last night and he was like, I can't even really pray. All I just sense is the peace of God. All I sense is the glory of God here. And so it's just making that choice to continue to believe and to continue to live life from the third heaven. And so now I'll go to Cameroon different. I will, I will, if they bring me a blind person, I'm going to be like, ah, <laughs> I will pray. I will not avoid wheelchairs. I will whatever, because I am learning. It's still a process. I'm learning to live life from the third heaven. I just wanted to thank Ron Book. You have no idea what you did for me this morning. We used to joke in school, or we used to always talk in school, how you got to get your Ron Book hug for the night, because he's such a father, and his hugs feel like your father hugging you. And I haven't been able to feel my father hug me for a week. <laughs> But when you hugged me this morning, I just felt like that was a gift from God. It was my father hugging me. It really was. So I just thank you so much for that. I just, I thank you, Bethel, for being my family. I thank you for your prayers. I just, I thank you for your love and your continued prayers. And like I said, Bethel for life. (laughs) 